What a blessing and joy it is to be here. And uh, my name is Adam Alley. I pastor First Baptist Church in Coconut Creek. And I always enjoy and appreciate the opportunity to be with you. I certainly love your pastor. And I have great respect for him. And, and actually, I don't like leaving my pulpit on Sunday morning, especially to my youth pastor. I don't trust him. <laughs> and uh, he's preaching this morning, and I'm sure he'll do a good job. And I hope he doesn't do as well as I do. I don't want the church to get any kind of crazy thoughts about maybe he could do as good a job a pastor if he weren't here and that kind of thing, you know. But I'm teasing with you. I, 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 I left this morning and came here because I love your pastor and appreciate him. I, I can't really see you. I know you're there. I'm supposed to be wearing glasses, but I have a one-year-old Labradoodle that chewed him into a million bits a few days ago, and I haven't had a chance to get them yet. So you look great to me this morning, by the way. I can't. And uh, I'm so glad to be here. Romans chapter 5. And you just read it a few moments ago. Romans chapter 5, <clears throat> first five verses, is a passage that I've preached through more than one time. But the emphasis that I want to bring to you this morning is something that's God, that God has put on my heart in kind of a fresh way. I was going to preach it to my church this morning. I'm preaching through the book of Acts with them, but I was going to kind of take a break from it and preach this particular portion of Scripture. But I'm going to try it out on you, and hopefully if it goes well here today, I'll do it next week for the church there in Coconut Creek. I want you to notice, you've already read the passage just a few moments ago, I want you to notice a phrase in verse 3. Where Paul says to the church at Rome, but we glory in tribulation also. I've had that phrase in my mind for a few weeks now. And last Sunday morning, I went into my living room. I'm the last one to leave my house on Sunday morning. And I went into the living room, sat down to pray for a moment. And just my heart led me there. And as I got to that portion, this portion of scripture, just looking at it for a few minutes... Uh, just a matter of about 10 minutes, God gave me about 90% of the outline that you'll see here this morning. It just kind of rolled off the pages of Scripture right into my heart and my mind. And I think that it is somewhat uh, applicable to all of us. Certainly it's applicable to all of us. But may I say that for whatever reason, it seems to strike a chord in my own heart at this stage of my life. Maybe it'll do the same for you. And so this morning I want to preach a message to you entitled, Learning to Glory in Tribulation. Now the book of Romans, let me just give you a little bit of introduction. The book of Romans has been referred to as the Magna Carta of our faith. Some refer to it as the Constitution of our faith. It's a wonderful book in which Paul lays out the principles of salvation in the Christian life with such detail and such depth and such accuracy. It begins in chapter 1 with dealing with the doctrine of sin. And he describes for us there in chapter 1 the sin of the heathen. When we refer to the heathen, we're talking about those that have not had the same opportunity to hear the truth. Unlike the nation of Israel, the nations of the world or the heathen have not had the same privilege to know the law or to hear the preaching of the prophets. And so Paul is dealing with the sin of the heathen and in chapter 1 verse 18 he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. In other words, every man, woman, boy, and girl on this earth knows there's a God whether they say it or not, right? 
It's manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Don't you love looking at the created world and knowing there's a God, right? And notice verse 21 says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened professing themselves to be wise they became fools now watch this now religion gets involved right religion is not man's ascent to god religion is actually man's descent away from god right verse 22 professing themselves to be wise they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible god and to an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things wherefore god also gave them up So Paul is establishing the sin of man and he begins by establishing the guilt of the heathen in Romans chapter 1. Then you come to chapter 2 and he sets forth the sin not of the heathen but of the Hebrew or you could say the religious hypocrite. The religious hypocrite takes pride in their religious efforts and fails to see that they're guilty of sin as well. And so in chapter 2 and verse 1 the Apostle Paul says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, Whosoever thou art that judgest, for, when, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest another doest the same things. You're guilty of the same actions, right? Verse 2, But we're sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. So Paul establishes not only the guilt of the heathen, but he also establishes the guilt of the Hebrew or the hypocrite. Then in chapter 3, may I say, Paul indicts us all by showing the sinful guilt of the entire human race. In verse number 10 of chapter 3, he says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. And say it with me, no, not one. One. So Paul begins with establishing the doctrine of sin. We are all sinners. But then in chapter 3, verse 21, comes, I think, one of the great transitions in all the Bible. Paul changes the subject from sin to salvation, and immediately he declares that God's salvation is not acquired by works or human effort of any kind, but by faith. Verse 21, but now, I love those words, don't you? The righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul introduces us to the subject of salvation in chapter 3, 4, and 5. That is the subject, salvation. And he wants the reader to realize that sinful man cannot come to God on human effort or religious works, but only through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Praise God, Jesus Christ died on the cross for man's sin. Praise God he was buried. Praise God he rose again the third day. And may I say, if you want to be saved, you can repent of your sin, place your faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, and you can be born again. You come to Romans chapter 4. 
Paul reminds us again that salvation is not of works, but by faith. It's not by law, but by grace. It's not by human effort, but by divine power. He ends the chapter in verse 25 by reminding us that Jesus Christ was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Then we come to chapter 5. And may I say that Paul sets out to establish the blessings of our salvation by faith in Jesus. And from verse 1 to verse 11, he just kind of lists all the blessings that we have by knowing Jesus Christ and being born again. I want to say to you this morning, I'm not going to go through all of these blessings that Paul mentions because that's really not my purpose this morning, but I I want to cover the ones that are mentioned in the first few verses because because I want to set the context for what I want to say to you today. First of all, I want you to notice here in verse 1 that there's a pardon to embrace. Verse 1 says, therefore being justified by faith. The word therefore ties us back to everything that's been written about the gospel in the book of Romans to this point. And the message of the gospel, of course, is that men can be saved not by their own good works, but by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul is speaking to the church at Rome, and the church at Rome, of course, is made up of Believers that have been saved, and Paul says to them, you've been justified by faith. The word justified, of course, means to be declared righteous by God. It's a banking term. If you have a bank account that's in the negative, you're going to be in bad standing with the bank. But if someone comes along, of course, and pays your deficit, then your account will be justified. It will be declared to be in right standing. And what Paul is saying to us here is he's saying we all had a sin debt that we could not pay. The price was too high, but Jesus Christ left heaven and he came to earth and he was born of a virgin, which means he didn't have the sinful blood of man running through his veins. He lived through every stage of life for 33 and a third years, and yet he never sinned one time. He went to the cross in our place and he died as our substitute. He was buried. He rose again the third day with a physical bodily resurrection. The Bible teaches us that he was proven to be alive by many witnesses that saw him and interacted with him on several occasions over a period of more than 40 days. He ascended to heaven. He took his place at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. And he's now the Savior of all those that come to him by faith. In other words, if you acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you deserve God's wrath, and you'll repent of your sin and by faith trust in Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection for your soul's salvation and confess him as your Lord, you shall be what? Saved. It's wonderful to be saved. I love that little habit your church has when the pastor says, are you glad to be saved? And you say, amen. It's wonderful to be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul said that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be what? Saved. That means that God will declare you righteous. He'll take your sin away and place you in right standing before God. Can I say to you that most men in the world find that concept very difficult to comprehend? Because men are basically into works and human achievement and self-righteousness and the idea of kind of lifting themselves up by their own bootstraps. And they hear Paul say that salvation's by faith and they reply to Paul by saying, are, are you sure? Are you sure it's enough? I mean, are you sure that you can just get in by faith and that's all? I mean, 
Once you're saved, Paul, don't you have to keep some kind of a standard up? Aren't you required to live a certain level or you're in danger of losing your salvation? I mean, Paul, what about, what about future judgment? I mean, it seems so oversimplified, Paul. Are you sure it will work? Can faith keep us saved? Is faith enough to assure us that we'll escape the condemnation of God and that great future judgment? And Paul says, Jesus is enough. His sacrifice was perfect. His sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God. His sacrifice was not only enough for your sin, but for the sin of the world. Every sin that's ever been committed, every sin that is being committed, every sin that will be committed in the future by every man and woman, boy and girl who's ever lived and will ever live, God saw the sacrifice of His Son on Calvary and He said, It is enough. So we come to Jesus Christ by faith and As we do, we're justified forever. We're saved forever freely by His grace. That's a great blessing, isn't it? Salvation is available to you. Just reach out and take it by faith. So there's a pardon to embrace. Secondly, I want you to see, and I want you to write this down if you will, there's a peace to enjoy. Verse 1 says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And Notice when Paul says that we have peace with God, he's not talking about a feeling, he's talking about a a position. We're in a position of peace with God. The word peace means peace between nations or individuals. It's an exemption from the rage and the havoc of war. Now if we have peace with God because of salvation, what did we have prior with God prior to salvation. What is the opposite of peace? Well, the opposite of peace is war, which means that Christ has dramatically changed our relationship with God. We were at war, as it were. God was our enemy, and we were God's enemy. And it's hard for many people to imagine that they're God's enemy. But may I say, you don't have to be God's enemy because Jesus Christ has brought us into relationship with peace as we trust Him for salvation. That means the war between us and God is over. I'm glad I'm not at war with God. I don't really want to be at war with anybody. I certainly don't want to be at war with God. I heard a story about the famous missionary David Livingston who spent several years ministering to the Zulus in South Africa. And after some time, he took his wife and he took his children and they went into the interior parts of Africa. And when he returned, he discovered that a neighboring tribe had attacked the Zulus and killed many of the Zulu people and taken the chief's son captive. And the Zulu chief did not want to make war with the neighboring tribe, but he very poignantly asked David Livingston, he said, how can I be at peace with them when they're holding my son prisoner? Commenting on that story, Donald Barnhouse later wrote, he said, if this attitude is true in the heart of a savage chief, how much, how much true or truer is it of God the Father, of those that trample underfoot his Son, who count the blood of the covenant wherewith they are set apart as an unholy thing, and who continue to despise the Spirit of grace. In other words, without Jesus Christ, we're at enmity with God, we're at war with God, and that's, that, that's what is the incredible thing. It's incredible for me to think about the fact that God pursues his enemies. God pursues his enemies in love. God pursues the sinner. Men have rejected God's son and they're in a position of enmity with him. And yet, and yet God pursues the sinner in love. He wants men to be saved and he pursues them in love to be at peace with them. What a remarkable love God has for men. 
In the book of Colossians, Paul is writing and he said this, And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight." I was a child of the devil. I was a child of wrath. I was, as the Bible refers to, a child of disobedience, separated from God, without hope in this world. And God sought me out and drew me to himself and delivered me from sin and attributed righteousness to my account. And because of Jesus Christ, I'm now at peace with God. How about you? It's wonderful to be at peace with God. And I want you to notice that We have all of salvation's blessing because of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. By whom also we have access. Look at verse 6. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Look at verse 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Look at verse 9. Being now justified by His blood. Look at verse 9 again. We shall be saved from wrath through Him. Look at verse 10. We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Look at verse 10 again. We shall be saved by by his life verse 11 but we we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ and then in verse 11 as well by whom we have now received the atonement it's all because of Jesus because of him we have a pardon to embrace because of him we have a peace to enjoy thirdly because of him we have a power to employ look at verse 2 by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. What is grace? I think a very familiar definition would be that grace is the undeserved and unmerited favor of of God, the kindness of God. God's grace, I can also say, is God's divine enablement. God enables us by grace to turn from sin and withstand the devil and to serve him with our lives. So God's grace is favor and kindness and divine power working in our lives. And Paul tells us here that as believers, we're not moving in and out of grace, but we're standing in it. We're not coming and going through it, we're standing in it. Because of Jesus, we're standing in God's favor and God's kindness and God's divine power. And Paul says that we have access by grace or into this grace by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the idea of access would have been very odd to the Jewish mind. Very difficult concept for the Jew to understand. To the Jew, this would have been a, a shocking word, a, a monumental idea, a staggering thought to have access to God. Everything the Jew had ever known about God was that God was holy. God was unapproachable. Throughout their history, that's, that's all they ever knew. If they came into contact with, with God, they'd be consumed. And in their minds, God dwelled in a temple, and He dwelled in the Holy of Holies, and He dwelled over the mercy seat between the outstretched arms of the cherubim wings. And if anyone beside the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement entered that room, they'd die. Nobody ever had access to God. Sinful man was separated from God's holiness. But then there was Jesus. And the Bible says as Jesus died there on that cross, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, indicating that God is the one that tore it. 
And through Jesus Christ, access was granted to the sinner by faith. God's favor and kindness and power became available to sinners by faith in Jesus Christ. And that access is given by grace. It's a, it's a thing of grace. It's not something we earn or it wouldn't be grace at all, would it? We stand by faith in God's grace. We rely on His love and His favor and His kindness toward us and His divine power to help us. Without the grace of God, there's nothing we can do of eternal or spiritual value. We rely on the grace of God. So as Paul moves through this list, there's the pardon we need to embrace. There's the peace to enjoy. There's the power to employ. Fourthly, there's a praise to express. Look at verse 5, or excuse me, verse 2 of chapter 5. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We're talking about the believer's hope. And when we talk about the believer's hope, we're not talking about a wish and a prayer. We're talking about a confident expectation. We have that confidence in Jesus Christ. We look with confident expectation to the glory of God. God has promised us a future glory. And because he's the God who cannot lie, we'll know we're going to enter into that glory in the future. In the book of Romans chapter 8, a very familiar passage, Paul wrote and he said, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, here it is, them he also what? Glorified. That's the hope of every believer. That we will experience and know a future glory. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. Notice the progression here that Paul gives. We're at peace with God because of the finished work of Christ in the past. We stand in grace because of the life of Jesus Christ in us and through us in the present. We have no fear of the future because we have a guarantee from God that we will be with Him forever. So God's salvation is past, it's present, it's future. We have been saved, we are being saved, we shall be saved, and we rejoice and hope of the glory of God. The word rejoice there means to confidently boast. It's a very strong word. It means to rejoice at the very highest level. We're rejoicing in a secure future. We rejoice because we confidently expect to experience the glory of God in the future. Now the question is, what is the glory of God? The glory of God, as you read in the scripture, is the revelation of God's character and person. When God reveals his glory, he's revealing to us who he is. In the Old Testament, he chose to manifest himself with light. And we often refer to that as the Shekinah glory of God. In heaven, even right now, God manifests himself in light. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 2, John was speaking and he said, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, and sight like into an emerald. In other words, John sees the very throne of God, and he sees the glory of God coming from the throne in the form of light, and that light comes off the throne in variations of color. And the reason it has variations of color is because the light represents the various elements of God's character. Now all of heaven is designed to emanate and reflect the light of God's glory. And the Bible says we shall 
be glorified. What does that mean, to be glorified? It means we're going to go to heaven and we're going to receive new bodies that are made for eternity. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul said, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like in his glorious body. We're going to receive new bodies. Praise God, right? It's a wonderful reality. Mine's going to be about 70 pounds less than what it is right now. A couple inches taller. I look forward to that, don't you? New bodies. It's going to be just like the glorious body of Jesus Christ. And with these new bodies we'll be given, we'll be able to not only look upon the glory of God, but to emanate and reflect the very glory of God ourselves. As you think about what makes up heaven, the streets of gold, they're transparent. When you think about the layers of the foundations are made of jewels through which the very glory of God will radiate, everything in in heaven must be like some utterly incomprehensible flashing crown of jewels with a glistening of the glory of God from the inside radiating out every refracted element in it. And you and I are going to be caught up in that whole incredible display of glory and become reflectors eternally of the full majesty and glory of the infinite God himself. And I don't understand that, but I look forward to it. I rejoice in the hope of it. I can't wait to be with God and see Jesus and see my loved ones again who have already gone to heaven. I look forward to seeing my dad again. I miss him. We have a lot to thank God for. We have a lot to rejoice in. I mean, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access into this grace wherein we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we say, praise God. We rejoice. We've been saved. We have peace. We have access, right? We have hope. But then there's a fifth thing here that I want you to see. There's a poise to experience. And Paul says, and not only so, but we glory in tribulation also. I read that and I want to say, Paul, what do you mean we? Maybe you need to speak for yourself, Paul. What do you mean we glory in tribulation? And Paul replies by saying, listen, God's salvation is not just a position for you to enjoy, but there's a process in salvation whereby God eradicates sin from your life and he eradicates self out of you and he makes you more like his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, he doesn't just give us salvation so that we can possess it. He saves us so that he can perfect us and mature us. To the church at Corinth, Paul said, I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. How's that possible? I mean, Paul had a lot of problems. How in the world is it that he learned to be filled with comfort and exceedingly joyful in tribulation? How did he have that kind of poise and control instead of reacting all the time when the problems come? He rejoiced in them. Can you imagine waking up every day and putting your feet on the floor and saying, God, I thank you for all the wonderful problems in my life. And I thank you, God, for for perfecting me and the work you're doing in me. I rejoice today in my problems. Bring them on. And yet Paul tells us we're to face our problems with joy. 1 Peter 4.18, Peter agreed with him. Peter said, but rejoice and so much as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. You want to see Christ someday, and 
Be glad that you were able to share in the sufferings and that you were able to rise above the problems and rejoice in them. You may say, Pastor Alley, I don't don't know that I'm there yet. I don't know that I can rejoice in my problems. I, I always seem to be the one that crumbles under the pressure. How do I get to the place where I'm like Paul, rejoicing in tribulation? To be honest with you, I want the same thing. I don't think I've mastered that in my life, but there's one thing I know for sure. I know it's a process. And that leads us to the sixth point. There's a process to expect. Notice that little phrase, knowing that, in verse 3. Paul wants us to know that there's a process that God uses to bring us to spiritual maturity. And he gives us that process right here. And I want you to notice that the process begins in the second half of verse 3 with problems. There are problems beyond man's control. Notice he says in verse 3, tribulation worketh. And that word tribulation means pressure. It was used for squeezing olives to get the oil out or squeezing grapes to get out the wine It's the idea of being under pressure. Now there are a number of reasons that you may be under pressure here this morning. Maybe you're under pressure because you're having difficulty in your marriage. Maybe you're under pressure because you made mistakes in the rearing of your children and now you're so disappointed and brokenhearted over the direction that they're going. Maybe you're under pressure because you've made major financial mistakes and you were presumptuous and now you're in a mess. Or let me suggest this. Maybe you're under pressure simply because God has put you there. Whatever the reason, you have problems that are now beyond your control. May I say to you this morning that it's not necessarily a bad thing to have problems in your life that are beyond your control because what God wants to do is enlarge me and enlarge you. We rarely ever see in our problems the need to be perfected. We always see the problem coming because of someone or something outside of ourselves. But I promise you, you rarely ever go to God with a problem that you're really not the problem. You see, God wants us to get to the place of maturity so that when we get under real pressure, when we have the real stuff applied to us, what oozes out of us is the oil and the wine of rejoicing. Why would we rejoice in tribulation, Paul? And Paul says, because tribulation works. We rejoice in our tribulation because we see in our tribulation a product So first of all, in this process, there are problems beyond man's control. Secondly, I want you to see this. In this process, there's a patience beyond man's capacity. Notice verse 3 says, tribulation worketh what? Are you with me? Are you alive? Class, tribulation worketh? There you go. Chapter 1, James said this. James says, my brethren, count on all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And notice this, let patience have her perfect work. Why does he say that? Because we're always trying to find a way out of it. 
We don't want to be under the pressure, so we're saying, give us, give us a way to get out of it. And Paul said, no, 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 stay where God wants you to be because tribulation worketh patience. Let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire and wanting nothing. Let God do in you what God wants to do in you. My wife and I are celebrating this November our 25th wedding anniversary. Can I tell you that in 25 years we've had quite a few problems May I say, in the, in the last 15 years, we've had quite a few problems. Both of us have had our fathers die and go to be with the Lord. We've faced disappointments and pressures. We've had problems in rearing our children, medical problems. We've had financial problems. We've had relationship problems. We've had professional problems. And when we started, there was, it was almost like a season of life where we entered into like this season where it was just problem after problem after problem. And it's kind of been that way for like 15 years, right? And early on in the process, we kind of just thought, well, when we get through this one problem, everything's going to be better. And it's going to be kind of smooth sailing from here, right? We don't say that anymore. We don't think that anymore. We've come to the realization that life is filled with problems, isn't it? And when one is over, there's another one right around the corner. And understanding that, listen, understanding that has brought us to a place of patience. You see, it's not the absence of problems that brings joy. It's learning to rely on God day by day and moment by moment that brings joy in the midst of the problems. That's why Paul tells us to always be rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. In other words, you rejoice and you exercise patience. Why? Because you learn to pray about everything. Can I just say, I've stopped like just saving prayer requests for later. I just stop and just pray about it. I'm just praying all the time. Does God, i got a problem here and a problem there. Lord, I need help here. I need this. I need that. I need the other. I mean, just Paul says, pray. Pray, at every, pray about everything because you know the problems are always present. They're always going to be there because they're not only part of your life, but they're a necessary part of the Christian experience. That's why Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, so that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Paul says, we thank God for your tribulation. And they're saying, Paul, stop praying that. Right? Paul says, you're learning what it means to trust God and rely on the Lord, and I rejoice in that. So there are problems beyond man's control. There's patience available beyond man's capacity. Thirdly, we see there's a proof beyond man's contention. Notice patience works what? Experience. Patience leads to experience. What that means is that as you face the problems in your life and you exercise patience and you rely on the Lord, what happens is God comes through. And you learn. He can be trusted. And you experience the Lord in such a way that he's so real to you and nobody will ever be able to convince you that God can't be trusted because you've seen it. Doesn't matter what anyone else says, when you've seen God work in your life, you, you know he's real. Reminds me of David in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 30. He took all of his men and kind of reacted in fear and he went into Philistine territory and they were residing in a place called Ziklag and they were away fighting one day and the Amalekites came into Ziklag and took their wives and their children and all their belongings and burned the place with fire. 
They thought they lost everything. They get back there and everyone's laying all over the ground and screaming and wailing. And the men are threatening to kill David and stone him. And what's David supposed to do? He doesn't know what to do. So he goes to God and he begins to pray. And God calms his spirit and gives him a sense of control. And God tells him what to do and leads him. And David and his men find the Amalekites and they slay them and they recovered everything. All of their wives, all of their children. In fact, the Bible says David recovered all. God came through for him. Could you imagine someone trying to convince David that God cannot be trusted? Never. He learned by experience that God is a very present help in time of trouble. So there's a proof beyond man's contention. Fourthly, there's a promise beyond man's concern. And notice what it says. An experience works what? Hope. Doesn't matter Listen to me, it doesn't matter what problems you've had in your life, there always seems to be one that pops up that's different from all the other ones you've faced, right? There there just seems to be a creative person behind the scenes throwing new ones, right? No matter how old you are, how experienced you are, you're going to face something you've never faced before, and that's okay because just because it's a surprise to you doesn't mean it's a surprise to God, And what you learn is, you learn not to rely on your experience alone, but you learn to rely on God. doesn't matter if you're 20 or 70. Experience is not enough. You need the Lord moment by moment, day by day, and He's always present, always available, and you trust Him and you rely on Him. That's why Paul said in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And he said, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that, that loved us. He's promised to be with us to the end of the age. And that leads us to the last thought. There's a provision beyond man's comprehension Romans 5, verse 5 says, And hope maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. It says, Hope maketh not a shame. What does that mean? When you hope in God, you're never disappointed. He doesn't disappoint. And when you come to that conviction, then you've reached spiritual maturity. When you come to the place where you know God loves you and you really love God and you trust God, then you come to a place of maturity because when the problems come, you glory in them. Paul says, I want you to learn to glory in tribulation. I want to close with one last passage of Scripture. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul was writing... And Paul says in verse 15, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. In other words, Paul was going through a lot, and he says we're we're facing a lot of hardship because we serve God and because we're trying to see people saved. And he said this in verse 16, For which cause we faint not, but though the outward man perish, get this now, yet the inward man is renewed day by day we go through a lot but the way we endure is we keep ourselves before the lord right we let him give us a proper perspective verse 17 here's a great perspective for our light affliction which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory 
What do you mean, Paul? What that means is what God makes you because of the problem, how God forms himself in you, that becomes so valuable to you. You go through it, you wouldn't have chosen it, but now that you've been through it and you see what God did in you, you cherish it. And it gives you more of a perspective, verse 18, while we look not on the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, and the things which are not seen are what? Eternal. We're living with the eye of faith, and we're living for eternity, and we rejoice in trials because we understand that God uses them to accomplish His purpose in us. And I say in response to this passage, God, teach me to glory in tribulation. Teach me what it means to be mature in Christ. Let's bow for a word of prayer together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take this message by the power of your Spirit and apply it to each heart and do the work that only you can do. Your word is powerful and alive. And Heavenly Father, apply it where your Holy Spirit finds need. And Lord, make us the believers that you want us to be. Help us to learn what it means to glory and tribulation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.